0: the freedom pact
1: hey thanks for having me it's great to be here
0: i've been an admirer of your work for a long time and one of the things that has always been clear to me when i watch or listen or i read your content is how much of a love for animals you really have that really radiates through all your work where did that originate from
1: Believe I was born with this. And my mom and dad tell me that there was this innate, like my parents are nature lovers, but they're not like animal fanatics. They love wildlife, they love animals. Animals have been a member of our family all along. But I have always been drawn or attracted to animals. And my parents tell me that it was just from when that time I could crawl, they had to keep reorienting me away from spiders and birds and, and any, any kind of thing on the ground that I was, you know, you see any kind of wildlife and I'm attracted to that. And we had pets growing up that I was very drawn to. So I think, I think it's a part of who I am to want to care for things in my environment. And that was from the time I can remember. So I'm going to say genetic.
0: I love that. I love that. And and kind of for the people uh, listening to this, they may be aware of, you know, your, your very big youtube channel you're one of the, the the most followed or maybe the most followed vets um on social media your latest book the forever dog and i figured kind of you know not many people think about this topic and this is actually why i was so eager to get you on the idea about uh you know animal longevity dog cat um and it got me kind of thinking that perhaps one of the the major places that perhaps we should start this conversation conversation is when it comes to nutrition right because that's obviously a very big part of health and i i guess you know there are few fewer more important topics um so i guess when i kind of think about you know, dog or, or or cat nutrition i kind of think about you know canned and kibble foods um i i just wonder how optimal is the kind of standard diet that we are on average, given our pets, is our optimal?
1: so the the standard diet that about eighty five percent of people feed worldwide is exactly what you described, which is this ultra processed, really convenient food that's either comes with little dry crunchy pellets that we call dry food or kibble or canned food. There are some newer players to the fast food market. Fast food meaning open your cupboard, dump the food in the bowl, and it's complete and balanced nutrition, which is like the equivalent of us eating an all-in-one superfood meal bar or maybe a protein shake that's been enhanced with multivitamins and minerals. And that's cool. I think we all do that from time to time. We do a meal replacement with this all-in-one meal. But statistically of over 80% of the world population feeds ultra processed foods to their beloved dogs and cats from birth till death. And when we stop and think about how our pediatricians and our own nutritionists, in fact, the kind of the message worldwide has been, we all should kind of minimize or begin reflecting on the amount of ultra processed food we're feeding. And we all need to be thinking about eating a little bit more uh, raw foods, fresh foods, foods from our fridge, we're supposed to shop the perimeter of the grocery store, you know, for our own human beings and our family's lives, we're supposed to be doing things to decrease the amount of fast food and good tasting, you know, food that comes out of bags or boxes and start thinking about less refined or healthier food options. And we've done that for our two-legged kids in the last 50 years. We've recognized that soda and fast food or dollar menus are not the best thing. But interestingly, veterinarians remain the last group of health and wellness professionals that still advocate only feeding our beloved furry family members ultra-processed food. And that, I think, comes from a long-standing relationship of pet food companies being an integral part of the support of veterinary colleges worldwide. So I was taught in vet school to only recommend feeding ultra-processed, all-in-one, nutritionally complete pellets or canned food from birth till death. And so I think we just graduate. Veterinarians are very compassionate people. We love animals. And if we're taught that this is all they need, I think the vast majority of veterinarians graduate assuming this is all they need. I grew up in a home where we always fed foods besides also processed food. And because I come from a long line of health and wellness fanatics it was not normal for me to only feed ultra processed food. So I went to that school knowing I was going to feed more foods than ultra processed foods, but I think that I was the minority. And I would say to answer your question, no, I don't think, I think it's convenient and I think it's easy, but I don't think eating an entirely processed diet from birth till death is ideal health, nor do I think it creates ideal longevity. No.
0: Yeah. that That's so fascinating. What you said about, you know, vets being these, As you said, they're they're typically very compassionate people, highly skilled at what they do. But when it comes to the nutrition side, which clearly plays a a very large component of health, you kind of hinted there there's some sort of perhaps political reasons, uh, you know, uh, between universities and, and, um, uh, you know, uh, pet food um, producers that were kind of, uh, a, a play in the kind of uh, what vets are actually prescribing to people to eat. Could you perhaps talk about that a little bit more?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, veterinarians are very compassionate people. None of them. I don't know a single vet, honestly, personally, that's trying to get rich, that's trying to scam people. Like they are genuinely lovely humans who love animals. We also are who you take your animal to when they're sick. So we do see people with beautiful hearts that make bad decisions about how to nourish their animals. We see people that think, you know what? I'm going to make up my own recipe. And so they you know, open their fridge and they're like, well, I have some ground beef and I have some chicken and I have some carrots. I'm going to put that together and, and feed that to my dog. And while that's a beautiful place to start, there's no calcium for strong bones. There's no iodine for thyroid maintenance. There's no vitamin D for in- metabolic and immune well-being. There's no vitamin E for good skin and retinal health. There's It's missing that basic diet isn't nutritionally complete. And so as veterinarians, we see people that try and make the right decisions, maybe without the correct information, or they just haven't done enough research. And because they choose wrong, they also inadvertently harm their animals. So veterinarians are like, oh my gosh, listen, if you can't feed a homemade diet correctly, don't do it at all. And they're, they're right. So between seeing people that are trying really hard to do what's right, but they don't have enough information to make good decisions, And people that are saying, listen, I've heard stories that, you know, sometimes homemade diets could harm animals. People are nervous to make bad decisions and veterinarians don't want to see their animals be harmed. So veterinarians do what they were taught to do in vet school, which is recommend all in one nutritionally complete ultra-processed diets for birth till death. And unless they have training outside of that mindset that we graduated with, which is just feed this one category of ultra-processed foods then that's what they're going to parrot, not because they're bought out or sold or the company owns or sold, none of those things, but because that's all they were trained to do. And they want to make sure that they aren't doing anything themselves, making recommendations that could inadvertently harm pets. So if they don't have any nutritional training or if they haven't thought about this topic, I love that you are so young and you're so interested in saying, hey, I don't know if that makes sense. Because if I were to say to you, hey, if you have a kid, there's a there's a, a cereal in the US called Total Breakfast Cereal. And it's like cornflakes that have a synthetic multivitamin and mineral added. So when you look at the nutritional panel on the side, it says 100%, 100% of vitamin A, B, E, C, like 100%, you're like, oh my gosh. But if I said you just feed that food to your kid from birth till death, you'd be like, that's maybe okay for one of my kids' meals. But like for lunch, you'd feed them something different. And for dinner, you'd feed them something different. I mean, you you would, may incorporate total, total cereal for some of their calories, but you wouldn't rely on that as their sole-exclusive nutrition for birth till death. And yet, you've had enough common sense to think about this enough to want to interview me. So I love it that you're like, I don't know if that's correct. I mean, that the logic, I love millennials for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is they do things like, I don't know, that doesn't sound right. And I'm going to question that. And it's out of questioning that we can minimize regret as pet owners. So I love the fact that we have this massive amount of veterinarians now saying, you know what, it doesn't sound right to me either. And we have veterinarians. In fact, uh, the Raw Feeding Veterinary Society was formed in England, a group of worldwide veterinarians that are like, I don't know if we should just be recommending ultra processed diets, not to mention this incredible body of pet parents worldwide that are saying, you know, I love my veterinarian and I understand that they never learned anything about recommendations beyond feeding a little brown crunchy ball, but I'm going to investigate this. So between open-minded curious veterinarians and this massive growing body of open-minded educated pet parents, pet owners are becoming advocates for their animals and they are fed up at the fact that animals are dying younger of more preventable diseases than ever before. And they love their veterinarian, but they are unwilling. They are letting common sense rule their food decisions, and they are branching out beyond ultra processed food. And it's so exciting to see.
0: I love that. And you gave a very telling example. You know, you wouldn't give one person the same meal every day, three times a day for the rest of their life. But that does commonly happen with animals. And we know, for instance, in humans, at least, that uh, nutritional diversity is such a key part of things like for instance the microbiome um so i wonder you know when it comes to actual let's just take for instance the dog what actually are the dog's nutritional requirements Uh, perhaps that would be an interesting place to kind of go
1: so dogs canis lupus familiaris evolved from canis lupus the gray wolf and so they're cousins both dogs and wolves they're not they're not in dogs are not little wolves they are different species but neither dogs nor wolves have a metabolic requirement for carbohydrates they don't need things like corn wheat rice soy oatmeal they don't need them to be metabolically fit they can exist and thrive eating fat protein and a lot of healthy clean filtered water So dogs do have a high requirement for trace minerals and they need a lot of antioxidants. They need a lot of vitamins and minerals coming from whole food sources because dogs are living in the exact same toxic world that we're living in, but they're doing so without shoes and socks. So they're walking through glyphosate sprayed yards and they're not taking a shower and they come inside and they're furry. So they're kind of swiffering and picking up. of these environmental contaminants not to mention the fact that we're not rinsing them off so their bioaccumulation of environmental toxins are much higher than that of two-legged kids because they're furry and naked so between eating poor quality not human grade food and the lack of biodiversity and the fact that they live in the exact same environment that we do dogs have a higher in my opinion a much higher requirement for a need for their food to help their bodies detoxify. And they're not getting it necessarily from ultra processed, highly refined fast food, which is what we feed dogs because it's convenient. It's really easy. It's hard enough for us to make foods for our own bodies. I mean, making healthy food sucks. It's important, but it's expensive and it's hard, right? You have dishes. So the last thing I wanna do after we nourish our two-legged family well, many people are like, I don't wanna have to make my dog's food. And not only do I get that, but pet food manufacturers have capitalized on people saying i just want something easy but quick easy food usually comes at a cost and we know now without beyond the shadow of a doubt that that cost involves the high heat byproducts of extrusion just like fast food junk food you know easy delicious tasting food has not as many whole food vitamins and minerals included. Not to mention, we've got a bunch of pro-inflammatory seed oils that have been heated. So there's these byproducts of high heat called advanced glycation end products that cause cancer and organ degeneration. Eating fast food, we know causes immune systems to not function as well. And the same is true for pets. Now, the pet food industry doesn't want to talk about that. But one of the most brilliant scientists we interviewed for the book, actually, uh, Tim Spector came out of King's College. And he is this brilliant microbiologist who said to me, I can't think of a worse thing for a dog or cat than to feed them the same food for two weeks straight because their microbiome has no new prebiotic fibers. There's no new new original diversified foods that can help not only diversify the microbiome, but help build that strong, resilient GI tract that we want our dogs and cats to have. So we know that there's this common wisdom, not only through microbial ecologists and scientists studying the microbiome, but if you think about dogs in general, they eat everything, right? They eat rocks, shit, sticks, dirt, bark, baby bunnies dead things. Like dogs eat anything. And they're they're kind of designed to have this over the last thousand years. They have this strong, resilient gut because dogs co-evolved with humans. So they literally are evolved to eat anything. And they evolved eating a lot of human garbage, like leftovers. So when people say leftovers aren't good for dogs, I'm like, we argue all day long. I agree with some leftovers are horrible, but the truth is dogs have been eating leftovers for the last 20,000 years. And they have done well. But in the last 100 years, we're seeing their populations not just shift in terms of epigenetic markers of health, but we're seeing the actual age of dogs diminish, not increase. And we have to stop and wonder, could a dog's overall health span start in the last 100 years to be affected by the fact that we've fed them only ultra-processed food? It begs the question.
0: Yeah. And I guess this is perhaps a great place to, I guess, jump into, I guess, more of the specifics. So when we are making a decision about, you know, what we should be feeding our, uh, you know, four-legged family, as you uh, beautifully put it, what would you say are the worst things that, for instance, we could be feeding a a dog?
1: Such a great question and a broad question. Some of the worst things so first of all, let's start with the best things we can feed. What yeah, I tell please, please. my clients, my clients, anyone who will listen to me podcast, the lady at the grocery store, what I tell everyone is the same advice I would give you and your two-legged family, feed the best quality food you can afford to feed your family. So if you can afford to buy organic or spray-free fruits and vegetables, do it. Because eating a bunch of pesticides, I mean, our bodies are already working hard. We're already, you know, trying to keep our microbiomes healthy ingesting a bunch of chemicals that aren't necessary. Like if we can avoid that, do it. And so eating organic food or spray-free food is a really good common sense choice. I would say extend that same courtesy to your dogs and cats if you can. The more nutritional diversity you, you can provide. So rotating between proteins, feeding chicken and beef. So chicken is hands down the most common protein fed to dogs worldwide because it's the cheapest protein. Chicken is has a lot of omega-6s, a lot of those pro-inflammatory omega-6 fatty acids, not to mention it's just one type of protein. So feeding a little chicken now and then is cool, but feeding chicken in rotation with beef, turkey, quail, ostrich, goat, pheasant, venison, elk, rabbit, like feeding all of those proteins is extra amazing for the microbiome because you're giving all this opportunity for this diverse protein to come in and build different colonies of microbes. And that's a great idea. And then we have to think about processing. So, at the worst end of the scale is semi moist food, which is food that has been high heat processed several times and then has all these extra chemicals that have been added to the food to create this synthetic, semi moist. Appearance. That's the most highly processed, least nutritious food. Then it's the extruded dry food. The average raw ingredients in dry kibble have been high heat processed four times. Not to mention, it's not really metabolically specific for dogs, meaning I mentioned that dogs don't have a carb requirement. Kitties are obligate carnivores. And when we think about 50% carbs being in most dry food, that's a whole lot of starch and sugar for an animal that doesn't metabolically require any. So High heat processed dry food not only doesn't have the nutrients included, so they have to be synthetically added back in at the end of processing, but it's that same monotonous diet that pet food companies don't want to hear this conversation at all. What they want is for you to buy the exact same brand of kibble for the dog's whole life because then they have a buyer for life. But we know that metabolically and nutritionally, not to mention microbially within our guts, that's the least optimal for dogs and cats. So then we start looking down the least processed scale. And far, so the opposite of kibble, we have raw food. And in the US, we have pathologically controlled raw food, all commercially available unprocessed diets in the US have to be checked to make sure that their pathogens have been controlled. So there's no risk of humans getting salmonella or E. coli. So raw food would be the healthiest food because it contains all the vitamins and minerals and nutrients that have been unprocessed in their whole refined edible form. That's exactly how dogs and cats evolved to eat food was. Then we have gently cooked. That's a fastest growing industry of the pet food segment in the US. So people that are making commercial human grade diets and then gently cooking them and freezing them. And that's a great option because all of those raw materials in the food have only been high heat processed once, and once is better than four times. Not to mention it's this moisture-dense food, which is really good for the body. Then we have freeze-dried and dehydrated foods, which are still significantly healthier than ultra-processed dry foods. And then from there, we have kind of this mid-range category that includes air-dried or gently baked cooked uh, cooked cooking mechanisms. And then we have the, all of the dry foods that go on to high heat processing. So healthiest foods would be raw foods that are nutritionally complete, and the unhealthiest foods are the canned, dry, and semi-moist foods.
0: Yeah. No, I, I thought that was a, a, an excellent answer, very comprehensive and kind of in line with pretty much all of the kind of principles that I've heard on this show about, you know, Uh, nutritional diversity about you know the quality of the food about avoiding these kind of ultra processed foods um so i I wonder kind of just i wonder if there's kind of been any empirical data that that you might be aware of that kind of shows whether there's a difference in lifespan or health span about say for instance a group of of dogs or cats that have followed this approach as you mentioned this kind of optimal approach versus more of what that follow, I guess, the typical uh, kibble diet? Do we know if it kind of does, in fact, empirically lead to kind of longer life?
1: Such a, this is the question, my friend, that drove Rodney and I to write the book. Like this, not even, this is the question that like keeps, as a proactive wellness veterinarian, that is the exact question that keeps me up at night. So let me first start and say, unfortunately, the number of lifetime dog studies that we have, we can, in, in all of veterinary medicine around the world, we can count on one hand and that's partly because of the cost it's millions of dollars to house a litter of animals from birth till death and there are obviously ethical concerns you know animals that ha- that are born into a lab that we know will die in a lab it should give all of us pause as to what those animals quality of life is and the ethics behind lifetime studies in terms of animals having joy and happiness and contentment, which all animals have a right to, there's ethics there. So we don't have very many lifetime studies. We certainly don't have any lifetime studies comparing ultra-process-fed dogs or cats with biologically appropriate, fresh, nutritionally complete diets coming from whole food nutrients. That would be a brilliant study. It would cost millions, but that's the study that we all want. We don't have it, I wish. What we do have is some really old dogs around the world, like shockingly old dogs. So this was the conversation between Rodney and I. Rodney's like, do you know, this is at night, uh, this is 2017. Do you know that there's a 30-year-old dog in Australia? As he says to me, I'm like, shut up. There's no such thing as a 30-year-old dog. He's like, I swear to God, there's a 30-year-old dog named Maggie in Australia. I'm like, first of all, I don't believe it. And second of all, you should track the guy down and talk to him. So Rodney does. Rodney tracks down Brian McLaren, who owned, at the time, the oldest dog in the world. And we. it was quite a, a, an intense thing to try and get an interview with this guy. He's a dairy farmer in the middle of nowhere. And just trying to get him on a Zoom call. He didn't have Zoom. We had to help his neighbor had to install Zoom because trying to find a computer with enough uh, you know tech to be able to even have a conversation with the guy. It was a lot. That set in motion our burning desire to talk to the owners of the other oldest dogs in the world. Because what Ryan McLaren told us was basically following the idea of Blue Zone dogs. The owner of the oldest dog in the world at that time said he fed, he let Maggie eat kind of whatever she wanted, a ton of human food. There was some kibble out. Maggie ate some ultra pro- she had access to ultra processed food, but she also had access to a giant garden. She got fresh human food every day, and she chose to fast. She also got things like raw oxtails and placenta and fresh cow milk directly from the cow. so she had this really diverse diet. She was able to make her own decisions. she got a ton of daily exercise. She had a bunch of friends. I was like, kind of sounds like all the oldest people in the world that live in blue zones they eat a Mediterranean diet, they do a daily natural normal movement, and they've got a rich so- social life. I'm like, listen, this is like an N of one. It's amazing that, you know, Maggie is 30 and that these were the variables, but I think we should talk to other people. So Rodney spent the next couple of years interviewing the owners of the remaining oldest dog in the world, 26-year-old dog, 27-year-old dogs, 22-year-old dogs, 21-year-old dogs. We He talked to extensive interviews to find out not just what they did do, but what they didn't do, what they intentionally did and what they inadvertently avoided by raising the oldest dogs in the world. And we put that information together in the book. I took that body of information back to the top longevity scientists, researchers, geneticists, nutritionists, and asked them to reverse engineer all this information. And what I just, I think, I mean, interviewing the people that own the oldest dogs, amazing. But what the scientists told me is mind blowing because not only does it fit to everything that we know to be true when it comes to blue zone people, they do need fresh living whole foods. They do need to move their body every day. And those differentiating factors along with reduction of stress in a rich social life, those are the variables that are necessary for extra long-lived dogs. And every single one of these exceptionally long-lived dogs all had those three variables in common. So I do think that anecdotally, or as you mentioned, without having a lifetime double-blind placebo controlled study, I think looking at the variables of the oldest dogs in the world and then reverse engineering those key longevity concepts... Is enough for me to say, as a wellness veterinarian that we have we have information that allows us to believe that all of these older dogs, it wasn't fluke or happenstance, that their owners were doing some key things and also not doing some key things that allowed for exceptional longevity to occur. That's what I can say.
0: I think recently we started talking about it within humans, but that kind of social aspect. Just how important yeah. is that for, for for animals? How how important is that, for instance, for a dog or or, or for cats? It's
1: such a great question. Do you know that um when I think about what I learned through talking to Nobel Prize winning scientists, all about David Sinclair, Harvard's top genetically uh, genetic longevity longevity specialist, talking to some of these experts about what having rich social bonds does. That was the piece that I personally totally underestimated pertaining to dogs. What what I walked away with in my heart, kind of already being reinforced, is just as you come, just as you commented, nutrition or diet is like the most important foundational thing that you and I are doing on a daily basis that will impact our dog's longevity. Every single thing we put into our dog's mouth will heal or will harm. So diet was a non-factor, but one thing I absolutely did prior to writing this book is I put not all my eggs in the diet basket, but but I will tell you, I overestimated the importance of nutrition. Nutrition matters, yes, but it's not the only longevity variable. Many of these extra long-lived dogs, there was a bowl of dry food sitting out. Interestingly, most of them ate less than 50% of their overall caloric intake in ultra-processed food. They were eating primarily fresh foods with the option to occasionally have junk food. That's kind of how I live my life. I try and eat most of my calories from not junk food, but I occasionally really enjoy indulging in a pizza or something, donuts, something terrible that I really enjoy. I just don't do it every day. I look forward to when I do it. That is kind of how these ancient dogs were also living their life. They would occasionally eat food that was not metabolically helpful, but it clearly was not enough to kill them off early because they're all mid-20s or older. So then the other variables that we started thinking about, hands down. So the the DOGS strategy that we ended up putting together was diet, the always optimal movement or daily natural exercise. Every single long-lived dog that we talked to all move their body every day. G is for genetic predispositions and absolutely every geneticist we talked to said that about 20% of longevity pertaining to canine health is related to genetics, 80% is environmental. Now that's in contrast to humans. Humans it's a 90-10 split, when we spoke to the people at the Broad Institute, humans, it's about 10% genetically contributable to early death is strictly genetic related, where 90% is the wise or poor choices we make for our lifestyle. For dogs, it's 80%, which means 80% of their well-being rests in the palm of our hands as owners. Well, that's empowering and also terrifying. If we're making good decisions, it's super empowering because it's like, you know what? Even though my dog has a genetic predisposition, I know I can make good choices to help fill in those holes. Just because my dog has a genetic predisposition for X disease, it doesn't mean it's going to be expressed. It means that we have the opportunity to decrease those epigenetic triggers, or if we don't know anything, then we will inadvertently allow those epigenetic triggers to tune on. That's how disease happens midlife. So that's super empowering. If you know how to kind of tamp down your dog's epigenetic triggers, if you don't know how to do that, then it's terrifying. That's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. The S is for stress and the stress was the piece of the longevity equation that I had totally underestimated. And part of the reason is that I was thinking narrow-mindedly about the concept of stress. And when we think about stress, prior to me writing this book, I would think about animals in the US being locked in a crate for 12 hours while their owners are at work. That's my definition of like stress because when you come home, if your dog has been in a crate, you owe it to your dog for your dog to be out of the crate for the remaining 12 hours. And you better focus on making your dog have a killer cardio session and then a sniffari and then they get a massage and then they get to stretch and they get to go up hills and then they get to swim and do foot. Like you better work. If your dog has been crammed in a cage where they can't move the other 12 hours, you have to do everything in your power ethically to give them the opportunity to for natural movement and a lot of it. Well, I know that isn't happening. And so that's my view of stress. What I didn't take into account was the fact that dogs are incredibly, they're social, like dogs are pack animals. And that's one thing that has not gone away from their canis lupus cousins. They need to be in a pack. They need to smell a bunch of butts. They need to be able to interact with other dogs. The problem is in the U.S., we don't socialize our dogs. So they're assholes when they're on other dogs. They don't they don't have the skills. They almost are, uh, some of the dogs are almost exhibit spectrum behaviors where they have antisocial behavior and they're defensive reactive or they're leash aggressive. They 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 were never given the opportunity to develop the social skills they need to be in groups. And yet they want to be in groups. So that's a stressor. Then we have indoor chemical stress. In the US, chicks are obsessed with plugins. We all want to have like pumpkin spice, mocha, latte, cinnamon, We want our houses to smell like a bath and body store, right? No one wants a stinky house. I don't. Like, I want my house to be to smell delicious. So in the U.S., we chemically scent our homes, and it's highly toxic to animals. That falls into indoor chemical stress. So does unfiltered water that has a bunch of impurities in it. So do microplastics. So do the plastics, the phthalates that our dogs are eating when we dump their dry food into a plastic food bowl. Our dogs are eating phthalates, and then they have thyroid disease and endocrine disease and reproductive disease. Then, at least in the U.S., we desex them, we spay them before six months of age, and it's one. I'm all about sterilization. Absolutely, no unwanted pregnancies. But we don't just sterilize our dogs; we rip out their estrogen and testosterone secreting tissues, which actually plays into growth and neurological well being and being able to create enough neurotransmitters to have logical, normal, healthy thought. Plays into our ability to interact with our own species. Plays in with our immune system. That's a veterinary stressor. So we have. Indoor chemical stress. We have outdoor chemical stress, which is the crap we put on our lawns that our dogs have to walk through. Do you know that there's a 70% increase in the incidence of lymphoma, the number one type of cancer that dogs get? If they have been in contact with a professionally treated lawn, their incidence of cancer increases by 70%. That's oh. an outdoor chemical stress, oh. shopping. Then yeah. we take our beloveds to the veterinarians and we are good people. Veterinarians are good people, but... We oftentimes say, in addition to their indoor chemical stress, including food, water, and air, outdoor chemical stress, including pesticides, herbicides, and everything that our dogs have to walk through, not to mention air pollution. Then we take them to the veterinarian who desexes them at four months of age and then put flea and tick chemicals on or in them every month, not to mention an annual round of vaccines that we know statistically for core vaccines, they don't wear out. We're giving them unless I'm all about protection. From infectious diseases. But just as you don't go in every year for a booster for your MMR DPT kid shot, you don't need it because you're protected for life. And after core vaccines, our animals are also protected for life. But they're getting these ongoing veterinary stressors that are contributing to overall stress. So the S of the DOGS strategy, the stress, is something that I totally underestimated. And I would say, that it is collectively that category of lifespan, healthspan, shortening stressors in our dogs and cats' life, that alone is enough that if people never change their dog's food and only addressed the movement genetic predispositions and all of the stressors, they could radically extend their dog's life, never changing their animals' food. That's how important addressing stress is. So I'm glad that you bring it up because it's a lot to think about. I totally underestimated that aspect of longevity.
0: Yeah. And and when you kind of go a bit into to at the end of the there into kind of spay and a neutrin this is obviously a big topic. I know that there's some kind of uh difference of of thought here, but you kind of mentioned the I, I'm kind of just interested where your opinion has ended up with this. Um, I'd just love to yeah. kind of get your thoughts on that.
1: So first I need to say that I grew up uh, in a kill shelter. I have euthanized thousands. I, be, I got a certification in a humane veterinary euthanasia technician when I was 17. And I did that because I was the euthanasia technician at, at my local animal shelters. So I feel very strongly about our overpopulation issue. I need to start off by saying that. However, as a proactive wellness veterinarian, I feel equally as strongly that above all, we take an oath to do no harm. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that traditional spay and neuter techniques harm animals if it is done too early. We know that. So I have to reconcile my incredibly deep desire to make sure that we are never contributing to an overpopulation problem through ethical sterilization with the fact that our current surgical techniques are not providing the longevity that our dogs deserve. Thank goodness this conversation does not apply to kitties. They have a totally different reproductive cycle. So cats are off the hook. But for dogs, (laughs) we need to focus on teaching vet schools and their students how to sterilize dogs without ripping out their gonads or their ovaries. And it's really easy. It's called a hysterectomy. We do it in humans all the time. We remove our uteruses. So no uterus, no babies. That's a, that's a solid plan. So we could switch from taking out the ovaries and the uterus, which is what we do at the traditional spade. We could just pivot. It's an easy surgery. It's cheaper. It's less time under anesthesia. There's only one organ coming out. So the problem is people are like, okay, this all sounds logical. Like, why, isn't, why aren't we doing it? Because we weren't taught it in vet schools. So anyone listening that has any pull over veterinary school curriculum, ask, pull your vet students, because I will promise you, I get emails from veterinary students from around the world every day saying, I would love to learn this. Where do I go? And I believe it is up to current veterinary students requesting that during their surgery rotation, when we learn how to do a spay and we learn how to do a neuter, you could say to your instructor, "Hey, I'd like to learn how to just do a hysterectomy. It's easy if you know if you learn." Likewise, when you're learning how to remove the testicles from an animal, you can say, "Hey, while we're here, before I actually remove the testicle, I'd like to learn how to do a vasectomy. It's a literally a simple nip, tuck. You just nip it and tuck it and cut it, and done." And then they can go on to learn how to remove the testicles. But learning how to sterilize dogs both female and male, in vet school would be a great addition to our surgical repertory in addition to learning how to completely remove those organs. So that would be my recommendation. We can sterilize dogs without removing their sex hormones. And that's a really good way to go to preserve health and well-being and be respectful to the fact that we don't want any more unwanted litters. So it accomplishes both goals healthfully.
0: I would imagine that what? someone might say is they might say that, for instance, if you take the case of neutering, uh, you know, I would imagine that they would say that, for instance, uh, being neutered would be beneficial for things like avoiding testicular cancer or, uh, right. you know, avoiding, uh, you know, typical male behavior. Dare I say, in this day and age, uh, But you know, be, things like being injured yeah. in fights or chasing after cars. W- what are your kind of thoughts on on that?
1: So absolutely. The research is there that if the organ is missing, there can be no cancer there. And that is, you are spot on. If you remove the testicles, you have eliminated the risk of testicular cancer to zero. There is no more risk. However, you have increased the potential risk of other types of cancers, including prostate cancer. And this is one of the decisions that has been reversed. When I went to vet school 25 years ago, I was taught that neutering may have a protective effect on prostate cancer, but actually that's not true. Early neutered male dogs have a fourfold increase in the potential of prostate cancer because they've been neutered. Likewise, if you remove ovaries from a female animal that reduces, it eliminates the risk of ovarian cancer but it increases the risk of other types of cancers unfortunately so there's there is a trade off but here's what's wonderful those hormones we know play into and actually let me go back and touch on the behavior yes you're right humping and mounting certainly because that there that can be not that's not strictly a sexual behavior but male dogs go through a period where they need to be trained you know like teenagers you don't do this in public. It's a behavior you have to manage. Just go in your bedroom and do like, just like with <laughs> teenage dogs, you teach them how to behave in public and then they get over it and then they learn. They have a humpy pillow. They can do that in the house. It's just a training and behavior. But here's what's interesting about the aggression. Papers coming out in the last two years have actually now we're reversing our opinion about the aggression issue. We used to say that neutering animals. Reduced aggression, but now two papers have indicated that actually we have an increase in male aggression from neutering. So I think that we have a lot more to learn. And part of people say, well, how can that be? Because hormones play into healthy neurochemical behavior as well as neuroendocrine neurotransmitter production. When we neuter and spay animals, their neurotransmitters are affected and they can be negatively affected. So I do appreciate the conversation that we're having with theriogenologists, as well as reproductive specialists, in beginning to recognize that if we're going to not teach easy, simpler, new techniques to veterinary students, we at least need to begin thinking about the age in which we choose to desex our animals. Because the longer that our animals can live with some hormones, the fewer side effects that they'll have after they become desexed and have to go through their life with no more sex hormones playing into the overall longevity and well-being. So I think it's a conversation that I'm thankful that we're having, but also one that's going to require a little bit more research when it comes to fleshing out all the questions we have about risks and benefits.
0: How does someone know when they are ready to finally get a a four-legged friend, as you put it, a dog or a cat? How how could someone tell if they are ready for that?
1: Mm, I think it's a similar review process, honestly, is, is deciding to have a kid. I do recommend if you're thinking about having a child, whether you adopt or have a baby biologically, you want before you decide I'm going to do this, you need to ask yourself those questions like, can I afford to have a two or four-legged baby? It's the exact same question. For anything that you are going to care for and take responsibility for until it dies, including two and four-legged kids, I think it's the exact same conversation. And it should go, in my opinion, something like this. Do, can, I, can I afford to feed myself well? Because if the answer is no, if you can barely feed yourself, you shouldn't take on the responsibility of feeding another mouth, in my opinion. So two or four-legged, you need to be able to nourish your child, furry or not, well. So number one, can I afford it? Number two, your your dog or cat is going to mature to about a three-year-old toddler mentality, and they're going to have arrested development there. Dogs are smart but they evolved to that of you know three, and maybe you get some super smart breeds, I'll cut like border collies up to seven or eight. But the fact is you have an immature prepubescent kid in your house for hopefully the next two and a half decades would be my goal. Do you have the time to, if you look at your future, five, 10, 15 years, Are you going to commit to this animal for the rest of your life come hell or high water? And if you become homeless, your animal's going with you because that's a commitment you are taking. If you can say, I will never give my animal or baby up for anything. I will never sell my baby or my animal. I will never leave or forsake my baby or animal on a corner. I am going to do this with my whole heart, brain, body and mind, or I'm not going to do this. Those are those really tough soul searching questions you need to ask yourself because if you can't afford a baby two or four legged, if you think, you know what, I just took, I want to get this promotion. That's going to make me work 88 hours, but it's going to get me to the next step on the ladder. And I, that's my goal is climb this way. You probably don't have time for a two or four legged kid. If you're going to be working 88 hours, what's your own social life. If you like to club it up on a Friday night and like Saturday, you hit the beach or go for a drive, and it's not going to include your two or four legged kid. You probably don't have time to bring that animal into the world. Don't do it. So, expenses and time, as well as location. If you live, if you share a one bedroom apartment with a friend that hates animals, you have to be able to recognize that the stress that your dog or cat is going to have on your roommate, and then in turn, the stress that the dog or cat is going to absorb. Dogs and cats absorb all of the emotion and the energy around them. And so we want our animals or our children to be born or be brought into an environment that is fruitful and productive for them, that gives them an exceptional quality of life. That, yeah, we want our dog and cat to be our best friend and we want that, you know, we want to have this amazing relationship, but we also want them to live their best life. So stepping into empathy and recognizing what can I intentionally do to give my dog or cat or animal that I'm going to bring into my life the best existence. Same same things we should be thinking with our kids. Like I want my kid to thrive and to become an independent, free-thinking creature that's a positive, contributing member to the society. Yeah, we want that. But guess what? We also want that for our dogs, which means I've got to have time and money to train my dog. Puppies aren't, they don't have an autopilot button. So if we don't put a couple years of consistent daily training into not just making sure that our dogs and cats are our best friends, but that they listen and that they come when they're called and that they don't chew the drywall and that they're balanced and they're emotionally happy around people that look different from us and they're great in crowds and they're wonderful at parties. Like Those are all investments of time, energy, resources that we have to have. So I'm so glad you asked that question because most people don't do that. They see the most adorable French bulldog that their sister's brother's neighbor has. And they're like, Oh my gosh, did you see that dog? And dogs are magic. And something happens. We see them and we release love hormones. We get some oxi- we get an oxytocin bump when we pet dogs. That's part of their addiction. Like that's their zing. So you meet the neighbor's French bulldog and you're like, I got to have one. And in, that's like saying I have to have a baby right now. I met my sister's kid, and I gotta have a baby. Can you afford a baby? Are you healthy enough to have a baby? Do you have time for a baby? Are you do you have you figured out where you're gonna put your baby during the day when you're working? Those are all things before you get the baby you gotta ask. And I believe in this day and age, with so much pain and so much dysfunction, and so many unbalanced mammals in the world, we cannot and should not bring another unbalanced emotional mammal into the world unless we can make sure we're doing everything in our power to put a functional, balanced, happy, healthy creature in the world that we are solely responsible for, that becomes our responsibility and one we have to take incredibly seriously. That was a long answer, but an important one.
0: (laughs) I loved it. I loved it. And um, no, I, I, I totally agree. Totally agree with everything you said. there. Um the next question uh this came in from our Instagram audience and this guy was at one point was massive in the UK my own mother loved this man and i would love to kind of get your thoughts on Caesar Milan
1: I think Caesar is a a single human that figured out early on that he could effectively himself alone get dogs to do things in a way that only he figured out within himself he could do. And I think that he figured this out and it was effective for him. The problem was it was not effective for everyone watching him. It's like a magician that's really good doing his act on stage, which is amazing. But then you go home and you try it. And you're not only not only nearly as good, but you try and saw someone in half without knowing the backstory. And sometimes bad things happen and accidents happen. And you're, you end up creating a hot mess because you emulated someone doing something without the science and the know-how behind it. And potentially, you can make the situation much worse. And I think that that's what happened with Caesar, that his philosophy and view and techniques are not replicatable in a way that is healthy for people to attempt to do on their own with not having any theory or training under their belt and that it hasn't necessarily been effective or healthy for the dogs that have been recipients of humans trying to train their dogs in that fashion. And then that created a, uh, upset unhealthy annoyed humans and that also created a whole subcategory of upset uh annoyed frustrated dogs and that has been a hot mess to try and reverse
0: yeah and it was so interesting because i remember when you know the the the, the dog whisperer and whatnot was on the show i remember you know i i think there was that kind of feeling that people could watch it and then go out and you know and, and then begin to emulate what was happening yes. i think that i this the story of my own life, a lot of what you were talking about. So I definitely think that was real.
1: I think it's a little bit like Steve Irwin, who could approach a venomous snake and almost get into um, a rhythm where they, the snake and Steve could maybe understand each other. And they had a little thing going on where he would feel comfortable be like, I'm going to grab by the head now and look, look at this and here's the snake. And it's like, did he just do that? Yes, he did. I would not recommend that there are plenty of people that saw those episodes that are like, I think I got that going on and I'm going to try it in my backyard next time I have a copperhead pass by. And guess what? It did not go well. And that is because they thought that they had something that they did not have, and uh, they had never handled a snake before, and it didn't go well for them. The exact same thing happens when people try and train their dog by watching something on TV, and that is not uh, my suggestion as a wellness, as a veterinary wellness professional. You should not try and emulate doing. Uh training techniques, especially that are not necessarily rooted in any type of science, that is that is more of an emotional thing that was happening that can't be emulated because you're not him and that dog isn't your dog. And therefore, those circumstances are not applicable to your situation.
0: Right, right. Just because you see someone doing brain surgery on TV doesn't mean you should go and try it. Uh, <laughs> it's I,
1: I I can just almost promise you it's not going to go well. And that is exactly what has happened with Caesar. And in fact, if he just started every episode with don't try this at home, don't, just like Steve Irwin would say, don't, I'm going to catch this poisonous animal now. Don't try this at home. Caesar needed to give the same warning.
0: I would love to kind of just ask you a couple more questions. Um, and I think that kind of we've kind of gone through, I guess, the 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 arc cycle essentially talk about you know, when do you know it's right to get repetitive but kind of extending the 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 life cycle, if you will, the health span, the lifespan of a of a of a of a dog, for instance. Um one of the things that that unfortunately is gonna to come to us all is is death. Um and I know for instance <clears> in the case that you know if you have a, a cat or a dog, that can be very intense grief period for 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 someone that that brings out their family um i know even for instance people that uh won't get another uh bring another dog into the house because the the grief of the last one was so intense um so i wonder if you kind of had any thoughts on i guess how to deal with that grief because it can be very uh, uh despair induced in
1: it i i believe that First of all, it's hard for me to talk about it because I just automatically, um, in addition to being a wellness veterinarian, I am a pet parent that has suffered profound grief, right? In addition, I have put my own animals to sleep. It's overwhelming. Yes. Too. i don't i I am very grateful that the world has woken up to the fact that losing an animal can be as painful as losing a human because our relationship with animals can be so supernaturally different than our relationship with humans so it i don't have a single human in my personal life that has never that I have never let down I have let down the people who love me and that I love i have inadvertently hurt them. I come home late from work. Sometimes I'm crabby. Right now I'm going through menopause. I can't tell you, I can't tell you what it's like to sweat cold, sweat cold. That can make me crabby. The one, the creatures in my life that don't judge me, that are there for me, that just allow me to be me, that never say, that never are appalled. Are the dogs, are the animals in my life? I have only ever felt unconditional love from the animals in my life. And that's magic. That means we have a relationship with animals that we have with no other creatures on the planet. That's supernatural love. So for people that say, oh, it's just a dog. It's like, right. That's supernatural loss because it was supernatural love. So anyone trying to minimize that just doesn't get it and that's okay but then what i would say is don't have a conversation with those people because not only do they not understand they're they're not your people when it comes to support or understanding or any of that but knowing that loss will be inevitable and knowing that we just just as if you happen to have that amazing relationship with a best friend or even better a mate if you happen to have this if you have found your soulmate like we have found in our dogs and cats as a human when that, God forbid, human dies, you just can't go to the wife store and buy a new wife. I wish it was that easy. It's like, oh, my soulmate just died of cancer. I'll just zip to the wife store and get a new one. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't. So for people that say, I can't just go to the rescue and pick out another dog, I get it. And there isn't a replacement for your beloved. I think what we can do to help our heart, no, especially if we're veterans at loss, We know the pain that's coming. And my best words of advice would be, in fact, the whole reason uh, I have become a proactive wellness vet is quite selfish. Uh, I can't bear loss and I can't bear, I'm hard on myself in terms of regret. I'm the hardest human in the world on myself. And so what I have to be able to promise myself is that when I put my head on my pillow at night as a pet owner, not as a veterinarian, but as a mom and dad to things relying on me, I have to know in my heart that I've done the very best I could. And the only way I can promise myself that is to become an empowered advocate, to know enough to make good decisions, to not have regrets. And that comes down to education. That comes down to me educating me about stuff that's going on with my animals so that I'm not asking my vet for his opinion or saying, I want you to make a decision. I'm not abdicating the things that are rest in the palm of my hand for my well-being. I'm not giving that power to another veterinarian, to people in my life. I I'm taking full responsibility for the animals that Karen Becker owns. And I will do everything I can to give them the best emotional well-being, physical well-being, nutritional well-being, environmental well-being. And it's my job to know enough that I'm doing that so that I can make the best decisions so that when they pass, I don't live with a life of regret. And that's my best advice to everyone listening is if you can minimize regret while they're alive to being able to say, I'm doing the best I can with the money I have. And it's so, this is about us, education's free. You can educate yourself now basically online with amazing resources for free. It comes down to us as guardians deciding that that's the commitment I'm going to make. I'm not going to be clueless. I'm not going to say, I don't really know what she's talking about. I, I'm going to go find out what what it takes for me to feel like I'm doing the best I can. And then we have to let ourselves off the hook. And I think that that's the most important thing is that we have as hard as we are on ourselves for the shoulda, coulda, woulders, we have to let ourselves off the hook and just accept the fact that we did the best we could. And that loss is overwhelmingly painful. And we're never going to be able to zip to the store and replace anything. It's relaxing into the fact that we will live with a hole in our heart the rest of our life. And we learn how to live with a hole. It sucks. It mostly sucks.
0: Beautifully said, I got to say, and certainly advice that transcends the uh, human-animal relationship. So I, I really, really enjoyed hearing that, and I think it will bring solace to people listening. And I'll go in through it. Um, I got two more questions for you. One of them is: Where can our audience connect with you? Where would you like our guys to check out? Where do you want to send them?
1: Probably the easiest all in one place is uh, com. That's my very basic website that my friend set up, but at least it tells you what's going on and who I am. And if you wanted more resources on what I do and where you can find a bunch of free information, I have a daily newsletter you can sign up for. So com probably the best place.
0: Everything discussed, including your book and all your social medias will be linked um, in the description, in the show notes. Um, so, everything will be linked below. Uh, the question that we sign off all of our podcasts with is what makes a life worth living?
1: Mm. What makes a life worth living is living for me, living the values that make up the fiber of who you are. Being able to live an authentic, transparent life that that is constructed from the fibers of who you are, that allows you to live in a state of truth and value for what aligns ethically and morally and spiritually for you. It allows you to live your best life because you're living a true, authentic life. So aligning, aligning authentically with who you are is, I believe, the very best way to go through life and maximize your ability for joy, but also deep-seated, meaningful relationships, which are the really the foundation of what makes us want to get up every day and live our lives.
0: Dr. Becca, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the
1: show. Mm. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.